topic of getting married, and, and I was approaching my late 30s, and I was single, and I, I wanted very badly to be married, and I listened to quite a few series on dating and relationships, really good ones, but it wasn't, it wasn't looking too hopeful for me until one Sunday morning at Grace Community Church, uh, John MacArthur, my former pastor, made some, some few random comments on dating and before he began preaching his message. And now, you have to know this, John doesn't really uh, preach dating sermon series. It's never happened and never will. You know, he starts it in a book from the beginning, he goes through it, and he moves on to the next book. And so, um, um, he never really talks about dating in general. So when he kind of kind of said this, when he brought up the topic, I was really interested, because this is kind of really rare and really new. And... Uh, my ears perked up. It got my attention. And, and, and so he said something like this. He said, it was just like a two-minute little pep talk. And he said this, if there's anyone here who is single and who wants to be married, and right before he continued, I had all these thoughts in my mind. I'm thinking, I'm guessing what he might say. I'm thinking he might uh, introduce some text of Scripture, you know, some deep theological insight um, about the Trinity, some some, something complex and something profound, he would unlock the mystery of, of how to get married if you're single. And so what he said next really surprised me. He said this, if there's anyone here who's single and wants to be married, I have one thing to say to you. Try harder. I said, try harder. And that, that was it. And I was kind of uh, disappointed I thought, it didn't seem very deep, didn't seem very sophisticated, but over the next few weeks and months, I, I began thinking about those two words, try harder. And then I had this eureka moment, I realized that not only was I not trying very hard, I wasn't even trying at all. And that's when the, the, the switch flipped on for me, and a year or two later, I was married to the love of my life, the woman you know is Mrs. Tina Pearson. For me personally, that was one of the best pieces of advice I had ever received. That memory really stands out to me because we live in a world where good advice is so difficult to find. Finding good advice is, is kind of like looking for Bigfoot, where you question if it even exists. There's a whole genre, I don't know if you've seen this, of kind of TikTok videos where these content creators, they'll stop random people in the streets, um, somebody who looks a little bit older or successful, and they ask them what they do for a living and how much money they make, and they, then they ask for advice on how to be rich and successful like them. These kind of videos are really popular because we're all looking for a piece of good advice, especially from those who've been there and done that. We understand that older people tend to give better advice than younger people because of life experience. And we're looking for good advice because there's just so much bad advice out there in the world. But, but age is just a, a part of what we look for when we're evaluating the quality of advice. We tend to trust older people than younger people, yes, but we're also looking for experience, aren't we? We, we want advice from people who have overcome uh, struggles and hard things. We want people who have who are uh, who have gone through various uh, life experiences. Those who have succeeded, they've climbed the mountain, they've reached the top. However, uh, even when you find that kind of person, somebody older, somebody successful, often these kind of people still give you poor and foolish advice. 
Arnold Schwarzenegger just released a three-part docu-series about his life and career, and he's, he's giving kind of advice to people. This is how I did it. And, and as you know, he was a, a, a world champion bodybuilder. He was an action movie star, a, hu a huge, and he's also the governor of California. But in the docu-series, docu he's, he's quoted as saying that heaven is a fantasy, and life after death is a lie, he says. And I'm sure he has some helpful practical tips about a career, but for the most important matters of life, if you would take his advice, if you were to take his advice about religion or general life direction, you would go to hell when you died. You see, you can be old and successful and still be a fool. In today's psalm, we, we don't have that problem at all. King David is the author of Psalm 37, and he is approaching the end of his life. David is old when he pens this psalm. Uh, look at 37, verse 25. David says, I was young, and now I am old. So David, as an older man, he now gives the world some sanctified advice. He's going to tell us what matters most. Uh, this psalm records an, an older man giving life counsel to readers who are young, like many of us this morning. He speaks from the perspective of having lived many years, and he speaks from the perspective of having uh, had a, a variety of life experiences. For ten years, David was a shepherd. The shepherd in those days lived a dangerous life. Day and night he faced dangers from robbers, from wild animals, from drought and harsh weather conditions. He worked long days and slept short nights. And when he got older, this shepherd boy became the anointed king of Israel for 40 years, a king over God's cho chosen nation, a nation the whole world hated. And daily, David fought off foreign invaders, assassins, political enemies, traitors within his, within his own cabinet and within his, within his own house and family he lived on the brink of death it wasn't it was not an easy job by any stretch of the imagination David had to carry like a lead weight tremendous burdens David was a shepherd a king a saint he was a sinner David understood the depth of the of his sin he was an adulterer he was a murderer but he was someone who was forgiven he experienced the power of deep cleansing forgiveness and in this way David fulfills some of the major uh, marks of a wise counselor. He's old, he's experienced, he's accomplished, but most of all, the advice and counsel that we receive in this psalm is the very Word of God. Psalm 37 contains perfect advice. Because, as we just read this morning in the Westminster Confession of Faith, the authority of the Holy Scripture is to be received because it, it is the Word of God. And so let me read the text before you, for you before we begin. And let me re read the, the entire psalm for the context sake. sake. But we'll, we're only going to be looking at 11, 11, 11 verses. But let me read the entire psalm for you. Psalm 37 of David. Do not fret because of evil doers. Be not envious toward doers of unrighteousness, for they will wither quickly like the grass and fade like the green herb. Trust in Yahweh and do good. Dwell in the land and cultivate faithfulness. Delight yourself in Yahweh and he will give you the desires of your heart. Commit your way to Yahweh. Trust in him and he will do it. He will bring forth your righteousness as the light and your judgment as the noonday. Be still in Yahweh and wait patiently for him. 
Do not fret because of him who prospers in his way, because of the man who carries out schemes of wickedness. Cease from anger and forsake wrath. Do not fret. It leads only to evildoing, for evildoers will be cut off. But those who hope for Yahweh, they will inherit the land. Yet a little while, and the wicked man will be no more. You will look carefully at this place, at his place, and he will not be there. But the lowly will inherit the land and will delight themselves in abundant peace. The wicked schemes against the righteous and gnashes at him with his teeth. The Lord laughs at him, for he sees that his day is coming. The wicked have drawn the sword and bent their bow to cast down the afflicted and the needy to slay those who are upright in conduct. Their sword will enter their own heart and their bows will be broken. Better is the little of the righteous than the abundance of many wicked. For the arms of the wicked will be broken, but Yahweh sustains the righteous. Yahweh knows the days of the blameless and their inheritance will be forever. They will not be ashamed in the time of evil and in the days of famine they will be satisfied. But the wicked will perish and the enemies of Yahweh will be like the glory of the pastures. They vanish in smoke. They vanish away. The wicked borrows and does not pay back. But the righteous is gracious and gives. For those blessed by him will inherit the land. But those cursed by him will be cut off. The footsteps of a man are established by Yahweh and he delights in his way. When he falls, he will not be hurled headlong because Yahweh is the one who sustains his hand. I was young and now I am old. Yet I have not seen the righteous forsaken or his seed begging bread. All day long he is gracious and lends and his seed is a blessing. Depart from evil and do good so you will dwell forever. For Yahweh loves justice and will not forsake his holy ones. They are kept forever But the seed of the wicked will be cut off. The righteous will inherit the land and dwell in it forever. The mouth of the righteous utters wisdom and his tongue speaks justice. The law of of his God is in his heart. His, His steps do not slip. The wicked spies upon the righteous and seeks to put him to death. Yahweh will not forsake him in his hand. He will not condemn him when he is judged. Hope for Yahweh and keep his way and he will exalt you to inherit the land. When the wicked are cut off, you will see it. I have seen a wicked, ruthless man spreading himself like a luxuriant tree in its native soil. Then he passed away, and behold, he was no more. I sought for him, but he could not be found. Observe the blameless man, and behold, the upright. For the man of peace will have a posterity, but transgressors will be altogether destroyed. The posterity of the wicked will be cut off, but the salvation of the righteous is from Yahweh. He is their strength in time of duress. Yahweh helps them and protects them. He protects them from the wicked and saves them because they take refuge in Him. In Psalm 37, David upends all of our natural impulses on how to live a full and abundant life. In last Sunday's Psalm, we were told to find our satisfaction in the Lord and not in sin. This Sunday in Psalm 37, David gives us the nuts and bolts of exactly how to delight ourselves in God. And what we will discover in Psalm 37 is that, is that a true fullness of life is not what many of us have been taught growing up. And so I'm going to spend a few Sundays in Psalm 37 in a series titled, How to Live a Full and Abundant Life. 
because we need a proper and true perspective about how to live our lives. And Psalm 37 gives us that perspective. And there are four ways that make up this true and right perspective on life in Psalm 37. And this morning, we're going to look at one of those ways. And the first way is found in the first 11 verses of this psalm, and it is this, be faithful. In these first 11 verses, you will not find anything about being special or unique or about making your mark in the world. You will, not, you, will, you will find nothing about the pursuit of wealth or success or comfort. There's nothing about the pursuit of your dreams. David never says in these verses to aim high and dream lofty or, or change history. He says the opposite almost. And he begins Psalm 37 by telling us to live a simple life of faithfulness. Just be an ordinary man or woman who is faithful to God. And so in verses 11, we're going to consider how you can be faithful to the Lord in three simple ways. Number one, keep your eyes on the road. Number two, always wear your seatbelt. And number three, don't honk at my grandmother when she doesn't see the red light turn green. Look at number one, keep your eyes on the road. Keep your eyes on the road, verses 1 and 2. When you're driving, you don't want to mind the driver behind you who's up against your bumper. Yes, you shouldn't be in the left lane, but keep your eyes on the road nonetheless. When you see the the accident on the side of the road, don't don't turn your head. You're, You're holding up traffic. In other words, don't let yourself get distracted from what you need to do, which is go from point A to point B. Stay focused. In verses 1 and 2, David specifically says, don't get distracted by your enemies. Don't get distracted by your enemies. I grew up watching Bruce Lee movies from time to time, and and one of those movies, there's a particular scene when this young little a disciple, he wants Bruce Lee to be his master, and he says, and, he, and he's begging Bruce Lee, and, and Bruce Lee, uh, you know, agrees to this, and, and so Bruce Lee tells this young disciple, okay, we're going to have a little sparring match, and so they bow, and as they're bowing, you know, the, the, the young disciple, he kind of bows, and his, his eyes go to the ground, and, and Bruce Lee kind of, he bows like this, and then in the middle of their bowing down, Bruce Lee just whacks him in the head. And the, the guy's like, you know, why did you, why did you whack me in the head? And Bruce Lee looks at him and says, don't ever take your eyes off your opponent. And that's conventional wisdom, right? Keep your enemies close to you. Uh, keep, keep your, make sure you, you have an eye on your enemies because they're always after you. But David says totally, totally the opposite here. He says, you know, Bruce Lee was wrong. He says in verse 1, do not fret because of evildoers. The word fret means to get worked up because of your opponent. It means to get angry or heated about your enemy. Somebody has unfairly treated you poorly. He's offended you. She has verbally attacked you. Your co-worker is forming an alliance against you. Your neighbor blasts his music all night and and, and the bass reverberates on your walls as your kids try to sleep. I hear this often, actually, as a pastor. Somebody will say, I'm never, I'm never going to join a church again because I've, I've, been, I've been hurt too much by the people in my last church or by my leaders. They failed me, so I'm never joining a church again. 
And David says for all of that, don't let these people distract you from what you need to do. Don't lose focus on what God has commanded you to do in this life because you will never be faithful if you're always letting other people get you worked up in life. Don't let evil people push you around by having you focus so much of your energy and and attention on them. Don't let life push you around that way. Because if you're spending all of your time dwelling on these past offenses or or on these past grievances, you will never be able to focus on the road. You, You won't be able to keep your eyes on the road and obey God's commands and keep His purposes. You won't be able to be faithful to God if you're always minding your enemies. Have you ever watched a basketball game, championship basketball game, game seven, your team is down by one point, three seconds left, and the player is, is about to shoot two free throws, and the entire crowd hates him. The entire crowd is screaming and yelling, calling him names. And the, what does the player do? He, he, doesn't, he doesn't see any of it. He doesn't hear any of the noise. And he knocks down both shots. Um, not even for a second. Does he let his opponents get inside of his mind? He knows exactly what he needs to do in the game. And God says here, do you know what you need to do for me? Are you sure about that? Then if you do, I want you to focus and don't fret because of evildoers. On the flip side of the coin, David says in the second half of verse 2, Be not envious toward doers of righteousness. We waste our energy either letting our enemies rile us up in anger, or we we waste our valuable time and energy, energy by wanting what the ungodly have. We try to chase after their toys and trinkets. We adopt their goals and ambitions. We want to find pleasure in the sinful pleasures they indulge in. We play their games. And what's even worse, we ask God in prayer, actually thinking He's going to help us live like the unrighteous. I think yesterday, the day before, the TV was on and it was just, uh, it kind of caught my attention because Michelle Obama was. but being interviewed about her book about life advice. It was about advice. And I'm working on the sermon. Okay, well, I want to listen to what she has to say. And then she, as she's talking about, she, she, she says that she, she takes her family uh, every year. They go to Hawaii for Christmas. And my wife and I were like, ooh, that's, that's pretty nice. And then I told my wife, I said, I bet they take a private jet. And I was just kind of imagining how nice that would be. And David, and David says, don't, don't be doing that. Don't be do that, doing that. Why? Verse 2, for they will wither quickly like the grass and fade like the green herb. The word wither there is, is the same word used in Psalm 1 to describe the blessed man who day and night meditates on the word. Psalm 1-3 says, and its leaf does not wither. Because the blessed man is a forever kind of man. The blessed woman is a forever kind of woman. We possess eternal life, so we don't need to fret about evil men, or we don't need to envy what they have in this momentary vapor of life. The the wicked wither quickly like the grass. They fade as fast as green herbs shrivel up under a hot summer sun. 
getting worked up over your enemies, letting them distract you from the mission, envying or wanting what they have, seeking what they own. It's like, it's like getting angry when you go to the park and the grass turns brown. Can you imagine that? You see the grass turning brown and you're like, I can't believe Fairfax County can't get the grass green. And you're just, ah! And if you saw that, you would, somebody saw you doing that, they would think you're not right in the head. Like, wanting what the lifestyle that the wicked, and uh, what, wanting the lifestyle that believers have, it, it's like making it your life ambition to have a, a lawn just as good as your neighbor's. David says, you know, herb gardens, they come and go in a few months. Green lawns, they don't last through the summer. They don't make it through the winter. Uh, Evildoers will be judged very soon, so give them over to the sovereign justice of God. And meanwhile, keep your eyes on the road. Keep your eyes on the road. Number two, always wear your seatbelt. Always wear your seatbelt, verses 3 through 6. When we put our little boys in the car, you know, in the back seat of the car, they're always kind of, they always want to do certain things, and they want to pick up the toy, and they, they want to pick up a book lying around, or they climb in the front seat, press all the buttons, or they're honking on the horn, and, and they might fuss with, with each other. Their, their minds are preoccupied with all of these options, except the most important thing, to put on their seatbelt. Like, every time I get in the car... I have to remind them, hey, put on your seatbelt. And, and, and they always forget to do it. And they don't want to do it. Why? Because it's boring. It's not very exciting. It's repetitive. Every single time they have to put on their seatbelt, it feels like eating vegetables every day. And this is how we often are when it comes to life. We get we put so much on our plate, we forget to do the most important thing because it's not very flashy. It doesn't seem like, what, that, like we're doing much when we do these normal things. So we get in the car, we drive, we turn on the radio, we drink our iced coffee, we talk on the phone, we forget to put on our seatbelt of faithfulness to God in the ordinary matters of spiritual life. In verses 3-6, through six, David says, Be faithful in the ordinary. Be faithful in the ordinary means of grace. Be faithful in the spiritual disciplines of the gospel. Put on your seatbelt before you do anything else in the car. And, and specifically, David says in verse 3 that the way we keep ourselves from being distracted by our enemies is, verse 3, trust in Yahweh and do good. Faith cures the problem of fretting. Because an, an obsession with your enemies cannot be simply switched off like a light switch. It must be ousted, it must be replaced by a new focus of attention. And David says the replacement is Yahweh. Don't put your eyes on your opponent, keep your eyes on Yahweh. Give everything to Him. Find your rest in Him. The reason we fail to be faithful to God is because we neglect diligently exercising our faith on a regular basis. 
You start our day hitting the ground running. We have our daily responsibilities. We have to get dressed and have breakfast and start work on time. We have to answer all of our emails. We have to get the kids ready. We have our homeschool lessons that we have plans that we need to teach, and we have assignments to grade, and we need to deal with our kids' misbehavior. I have a sermon to write. There are coworkers who are hard to deal with. My boss is on my case for some trivial matter. We're trying to plan our vacation. I've got to reserve the Airbnb and the rental car. I need to order some things on Amazon. I have Sunday school to prepare for. And in all of that, and through all of that, we often fail to exercise a conscious faith in the Lord. And in all those things, truth be told, we're depending on ourselves for all of it. And so when something goes wrong or awry, when things hit a snag, we completely lose it. We get scared, we get nervous, angry, we sin, we get in an argument, we say sinful words. We're so busy, so preoccupied, we crash our cars into the wall, and we forget that we we forgot to put on our seatbelts. We forgot to trust in the Lord. And so what are you doing each day to cultivate an active trust in God? Who are you trusting in the midst of all your daily responsibilities? I know you're trying to conquer the world, but God says that faithfulness in the ordinary is much more important. It'll give you a fuller life, a more satisfying existence. Trust in Yahweh. In verse 3, David says, and do good. What does it look like to trust God? What is the fruit of trusting God? It's doing good. It's doing what is helpful. It is doing what is beneficial according to the word. It's doing the right thing. Putting your marriage and family before your career. It's putting people before your projects. David doesn't say to do something spectacular. He says do something good. Someone once asked Harry Truman, what was the first thing he would do arriving home after leaving the White House? And he said, take the suitcases up to the attic. Just do the next thing that needs to be done. Nothing sensational. Trust God and do good. You see, when we, when we, when we fail to be faithful in the ordinary, don't be surprised when life hits the fan and we completely fall apart. Verse 3, David continues and he says, dwell in the land. Dwell in the land. If you, you know this, the land of Israel was promised to Abraham and Israel in the Abrahamic covenant of Genesis 12 and 15. For Israel's covenant faithfulness, God in turn would grant them the promised land of Israel. God says here they are to dwell in the land. They are to stay put. In other words, they are to do nothing. Just, just stay where you are and do nothing. And doing nothing isn't very flashy. Doing nothing isn't very spectacular. It's ordinary. Go to church every Sunday. Read your Bible every day. Pray to God. Serve your church. None of, none of this is going to go viral. You're not going to gain a million TikTok followers for this, but it's, it's faithfulness in the ordinary that makes up a full and abundant life. Verse 3. He says, uh, continues, dwell in the land and cultivate faithfulness. The Jews were mostly farmers who cultivated the land. Farming was normal for them. And, and so David, he picks up on this idea of this normal farming life. And he says, you know, cultivate faithfulness like you farm your land. What are your basic responsibilities as a Christian? Get baptized, go to church, serve your 
serve your brother or sister in Christ, pray, read your Bible every day. This is normal Christian living that many Christians don't do very well. We are so preoccupied with more important things we think that we do not do things that contribute to a full and abundant life. Faithfulness in the ordinary means trusting God, doing good, and next, faithfulness in the ordinary means finding pleasure and joy and satisfaction in God Himself. Look at verse 4. Delight yourself in Yahweh. Make sure Yahweh is your highest pleasure, that He is your greatest satisfaction. Spoil yourself with more of God. Look at, remind, uh, go back to Psalm 36. Remember uh, verse 8 and 9? They are satisfied from the richness of your house, and you give them to drink of the river of your delights. For with you is the fountain of life. In your light we see light. David in verse 4 tells his audience, to relish the refined spiritual delicacies enjoyed by those in, in a relationship with God. The way rich people enjoy fine food and drink and luxurious surroundings and stylish adornments. To delight yourself in God is to find pleasure in Him the way that the world finds pleasure in the satisfaction of their desires. We must love Christ the way the world loves money. We must love the gospel the way the world loves fame. We must love God's word the way the world loves career advancement and social position. And then he says, if you delight yourself in Yahweh, verse 4, then David says, and he will give you the desires of your heart. Now verse 4 doesn't mean that if you delight yourself in, in the Lord, he'll give you whatever you want doesn't mean if you delight yourself in the Lord, you're going to get a raise at work or a nice car. No, the, this is the idea. If God becomes our essential delight, the desires of our hearts will become desires for more of God. When we're delighting ourselves in God, He will give us new, increasing desires for Himself. Desires that will satisfy you. And so God, He satisfies the right kind of desires. Your heart's desires must correspond directly with delighting in the Lord. They must be desires God affirms explicitly in His Word. As you, and as you delight yourself in the Lord, you will have desires to have a life more pleasing to God. You will have desires to see your brothers and sisters grow in Christ. You will have desires for more courage to share the Gospel. You will have, you will have desires to serve your local church and instead of thinking it's just a big waste of time. And He will grant you those holy desires if they are the direct result of delighting in the Lord. Being faithful in the ordinary requires perseverance, according to verses 5 and 6. Being faithful in the ordinary requires perseverance. It's not enough for you to be so inspired by the text this Sunday for you to start being faithful in the ordinary for the next two weeks. No, it requires a perseverance. And, and David says in verse 5, he says, commit your way to Yahweh. The word for commit in the Hebrew is often used literally for the, wor for the word to roll a large stone. Genesis, 23, Genesis 29 verse 3 says, and when all the flocks were gathered there, the shepherds would roll the stone from the mouth of the well. There you go. Jacob is, is trying to uh, uh, roll the stone away from this well. 
And this is not easy. And the point is, is that the, the, when you give God all your concerns, um, when, you, when you give God all your burdens, you, you must do it with the kind of effort you might expend rolling a large stone up a hill. In other words, trusting God is hard work. Trusting God is an, an intense struggle. It's like, it's like Jacob trying to roll the large stone off the mouth of the well when he watered Rachel's sheep. It isn't easy. And if you think about it, we know this already, right? You've been in a trial, and you wanted to trust God. And was it easy to do? No, it was, it was very difficult. And, and, you, and, you, and you didn't do it very well. You wanted to trust God in this really hard situation, but you weren't able to. And that's why you never tell somebody who is going through a trial, you never tell them, hey, hey man, just trust God. That's like, that's like saying to me, it's like telling me, like, hey, you know, I want to lose some weight for the summer. I'm going to the beach. And, and that's like saying to me, oh, oh uh, George, just, just run the Boston Marathon. Just, just do that. Next six months, just wake up at five and run three hours and five miles, ten miles, and lose all your toenails. Just run the Boston Marathon. Just, just roll the large stone up that mountain over there. See, people who say that, they really don't know what it means to trust God. Because it's hard. It's a struggle. We need lots of help. We need lots of grace. We need to ask others to pray for us. That, that I, would you pray for me that I would just trust Him? We need to read good Christian books and literature about trusting God's Word. We need to listen to good sermons about trusting God. We need to sing songs about trusting God. We, we, need, we need to access the power of God in the Psalms for trusting God. There is nothing like the power of the Psalms when it comes to the hardest issues of the heart. I am utterly convinced that people with the most severest mental issues can have their hearts healed by the Psalms. We have a friend who struggles with with real, real deep psychological issues. And, and every, we meet with her and her husband, my wife and I, once a month, once, in, once every two months. And I say, I say hey, sister, did you, did you memorize the psalm I told you to? And I tell her, you can get completely better if you just, you just take three or four psalms, you just meditate on them, memorize them, and it'll radically transform your life. I, told, I tell this story to some of you um, years ago with my personal experience with the Psalms. It was a few, few years ago during the, during the COVID issue, and we went to Ocean City, and we were, we're kind of out there, and, and every day there was this, near a hotel, there was this ice cream parlor, right? And you order the ice cream, and the ice, they give you like, it's like literally up, up to here, like five scoops. So we go around seven or eight after dinner, and, and I, just, I just devour this ice cream. And First night I was there, I couldn't sleep. You know, it's like four or five, and I can't sleep. I, I don't, and I don't know why. I'm not making the connection with the ice cream, right? Next day, 7 o'clock, let's go to the ice cream thing, you know? And I get the ice cream for like four or five days in a row. I can't sleep the whole week. And after the week, I am like a wreck. And I am like, what? why can't I sleep? I don't know if you ever had trouble sleeping. It's so frustrating because it's the most simple thing in the 
most simple thing to do in the world. And I'm saying to myself, I can't do the most simple thing in the world. I can't sleep. And it just, and all these kind of, uh, these past issues with fear and anxiety, it just came up and it just came ahead and I was in trouble. But I knew what to do. I knew I needed to go to the Psalms. I knew I needed to memorize the Psalms. And I did. And I memorized three or four or five Psalms and I would rotate them and I would, I would meditate on them over and over, hundreds, hundreds, maybe a thousand times a day in my head going over the Psalms. And it was hard work. At my age, it is very difficult to memorize Psalms. And a few weeks later, I was sleeping like a baby. I was sleeping like a baby. The Psalms fuel deep faith. The Psalms, like a nuclear power plant, give us this divine energy to trust in God. Verse 5, David says, trust in Him and He will do it. You can really feel safe in the hands of God. You can really have this great confidence that He will deliver you. Trust in Him and He will do it. That's the kind of faith we, we need to strive toward. We need to kind of get to the place where we said, I've trusted in Him. I've done the hard work of the, of the heart, uh, uh, shepherding my heart, asking people to pray for my heart, letting the Psalms strengthen my faith. And now I'm at the place where I am completely confident that He will do it. I don't know when. I don't know how. But I do know that in the end, he will do what he's promised. Look at verse 6. He will bring forth your righteousness as the light and your judgment as the noonday. One day, all of our quiet, persevering faithfulness in the ordinary will be known throughout the universe. We'll have this cr golden crown given to us by Jesus himself, and we will realize then that even now, maybe now, faithfulness in the ordinary wasn't very special, wasn't very unique, but on that day we will come to this great realization that it was more than worth it. It will be like the dawning of the noonday, like the light of the sun. He will vindicate you in the end, brothers and sisters. And so, how can we be faithful to God? Number one, you keep your eyes on the road. Number two, always wear your seatbelt. Number three, don't honk at my grandmother when she doesn't see the red light turn green. In other words, be patient. Verse 7, be still in Yahweh and wait patiently for Him. Cultivate a stillness of the heart. Cultivate a, a heart that isn't always restless. That you gotta, I gotta do something. I gotta do something. No, cultivate a heart that has confidence that God will do something. Don't try to do what God can only do. He's gonna do something about your situation, but not in a way you might expect. Often, not according to your timetable. Charles Spurgeon said this: "Time is nothing to him. Let it be nothing to thee. God is worth waiting for. He never is before his time." He never is too late. In verse 7 and 8, David picks up on the topic he begun the psalm with. He says, he continues in verse 7, Do not fret. There, there you see that command not to fret. Because of him who prospers in his way. 
because of the man who carries out the, the schemes of, of, of wickedness. Cease from anger, verse 6, and forsake wrath. Do not fret. It only leads to evil doing. David gives us more reasons why we shouldn't get all bent out of shape emotionally about those who prosper in this life as they carry out these schemes of wickedness against us. In those times, David says, most importantly, verse 8, cease from anger. Forsake wrath. Don't get so angry about it. Do not fret, verse 18. Again, why? It only leads to evil doing. Because you don't want to turn into the person that you got so mad at in the first place. When you focus on your enemy, you turn into your enemy. When you focus on your opponent instead of trusting in the Lord, you turn to the same kind of person your opponent is. Your sinful wrath and anger will not lead to, will not lead to good. It'll, it'll ruin your life. There are so many people who have set their entire life trajectory in response to someone who has hurt them in the past. Someone told you when you were young that you were dumb, and now you spent your entire life trying to prove them wrong by getting degrees and PhDs. Somebody said you were fat or you were ugly, and now you, you obsess over that. You get plastic surgery, surgery and you run marathons and you start fitness companies because you were hurt in the past and, and, and you were offended. You, your, your whole, the whole motivation of your life has kind of been because of this fretting over these evildoers who have hurt you. And then, at the end of your life, you feel empty and discontent because you skipped church when your pastor preached on Psalm 37. And you weren't there because you thought success was the best revenge for enemies who hurt you years ago. And so you exchanged the simple, faithful life for the successful, empty life. Let a good and righteous God right your wrongs. Let a wise, sovereign, all-powerful God of love and compassion handle your difficult situation. God says, don't fret. Don't, don't focus on the enemy. Let go of the pain. Look at verse 9. Why? For evildoers, they'll be cut off. Verse 10, how, how long do I have to wait? Yet a little while. Just a little while. And the wicked will, will be no more. You will look carefully at his place and he will, he'll, he will not be there. Wait. Because it's more than worth it. For the evildoers, they'll be judged. But for those who are faithful, over and over, David says in the psalm, verse 9, they will inherit the land. Verse 10, but the lowly, they will inherit the land. Verse 22, for those blessed by him will inherit the land. The land is this, the promise of Abraham that Israel in their obedience will receive the, the land of Israel. The kingdom ruled by Christ. Look at verse 30, 34. And he will exalt you to inherit the land. When Jesus preached the Sermon on the Mount, what, what better place 
for him to quote then Psalm 37. And he, he quotes Psalm 37, 11 on the Sermon on the Mount when he says in Matthew 5, 5, Blessed are the lowly, for they shall inherit the earth. When Christ returns, His people will finally inherit the land, the land promised to Abraham. Remember the story of Scripture. Remember, the first Adam ruled in the earth and over the earth. The second Adam will rule in the earth and over the earth. He will do what Adam failed to do. And this is the joy and the hope and the promise that David gives to us. The second Adam is coming to rule in the world and over the world. And you get to be a part of that if your lives prove to be faithful to the Lord. In other words, he says, with this promise of, of inheriting the land, or then he says, well, look, look at verse 11. What, what kind of life will that be? Uh, verse 11, but the lowly will inherit the land and will delight themselves in abundant peace. In other words, those who delight in the Lord today will delight in everything when Jesus returns. Now we can only delight in the Lord. There's so many other things where those things are not a delight. But when Christ returns, David promises, you will delight in everything. So delight in the Lord now so that you can delight in the Lord, delight in everything when Christ returns. When Jesus rules on the earth, we will rule with Him. And then we'll be the big shots. Then we'll be the big shot. So, so for now, keep your eyes on the road. Put on your seatbelts. Stop honking at the, at the driver in front of you. Don't chase after success. Be faithful to God instead. Worldly success lead, today leads to the most pitiful kind of end. But for the simple and the lowly, faithfulness to the Lord brings the fullest kind of life now and the fullest kind of life on every dimension when Christ returns. Let's pray.